Father, we are an absolute unworthy people for what we have received at your hand and at the expense of your Son, of his mockery and beating and crucifixion, absorption of our sin. Father, there is a perfect standard that you hold that we must be perfectly righteous in your sight, in your presence, to be in your presence. And that day on that tree, Father, your great standard and your great love met. Now, Father God, I stand as a righteous man in the perfect white robe of Jesus' perfection, perfectly obeying the law, perfectly living in righteousness. And then he exchanged with me for my sin, the penalty of my sin. Dear God, I... Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. I pray that it would not just be lip service, but that my life would be in line with what's happened, with what I believe, with what is true about my state before you. I want to walk in holiness, Lord God. So I express from the depths of my heart this morning, Lord God, the gratitude that you have redeemed Dan Mason, made him new. I praise you and thank you, Father, and I ask for your blessing as we turn our attention back to this study in Genesis. In Jesus' name, amen. It's embarrassing at times when we see (laughs) how much worry we went through. You ever been there where you have a particular meeting or maybe a particular encounter or a particular confrontation or a particular test or a particular issue that's going to be dealt with? And as you're looking at it, you can think of every reason this is going to be the worst thing that's ever happened in your life ever. You think of all the different angles and all the different expressions and all the things that are going to come out of this particular meeting or this particular event. Your stomach hurts, you got cramps, your chest hurts a little bit, your heart beats a little bit faster, and you're scared. You sit there and just contemplate, what if this happens? What if this happens? Oh, that's going to happen. And you think through all these things. I remember being scared to death to take my my, um, final drive with driver's ed because it's downtown Spokane, and I didn't drive downtown Spokane very regularly. You know what happened? Worried myself sick, and then it was one of the strongest, fullest snow days in Spokane that winter. And that guy cut me so much slack because the weather was so bad. I mean, he didn't know how bad of a driver I was because I could go, oh, it's the snow. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Well, snow doesn't make you go fast. No, it's the snow. It's the snow. And I passed, by the way. I can drive legally. um, So... But as I think about different events just in my life, I go back and I go, you know, I can think of 
hours of worry and concern and fretting. And then when the actual event happened, I came away going, man, God, I, I didn't help at all. You were completely in control. You showed yourself faithful. And so the question sometimes I ask myself is, Dan, how many times do you need to see this before you start to get it? Because I talk as if it's past tense that I worry and I'm concerned about particular events and meetings with different people and different things that have to do. And so my heart really goes out to Jacob in this text. Um, As Jacob is about to go and meet his brother Esau, this man has planned and prayed, planned and prayed, and thought and worried. And now the drum is going to start rolling and he's going to meet him. Let me just remind you, because this was months ago, um, go back to chapter 27, Genesis 27. Just as a reminder of the last thing Jacob has between his ears in regards to his brother. Genesis chapter 27, verse 38. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Now it doesn't say it here, but my thought is, You want a blessing? I got a blessing for you. So listen to this. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. Oh, what a dagger to the heart. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she went and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. And stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? All right, so go back to 33. So this is the last thing that's told to Jacob about his brother Esau. And then we get to go with him on the crazy adventure of Laban land. And he goes there, lied to, marries one daughter who he doesn't know is the right daughter, then marries the other daughter, then marries the daughter's slave, then marries the other daughter's handmaiden, and then a pile of children. God is blessing him in the midst of what's taking place. And we see a lot of ebb and flow in the life of Jacob. We see a man who's in process, a man who's growing, somebody who's wrestled with his own selfishness, a man who's wrestled with many different things, but also is growing in grace over and over and over again. And now God has so powerfully, richly blessed him and has set him free from Laban after a pretty strong confrontation 
It's interesting, if you look at Jacob, he strikes me as somewhat of a non-confrontational man at the beginning of, of when we meet Jacob. More of a, maybe kind of a more of a cheat, more of a sneaky type of guy. And yet, the confrontation after confrontation after confrontation just keeps walloping this guy over and over again. It's like, well, now you got to confront Laban. Now you got to confront um, your wives. Now you got to confront. Now you've got to confront. And then, ultimately, what we saw in 32, you will confront the Lord. Better yet, the Lord will confront you. And you're going to be in a wrestling match to beat the band up against the angel of the Lord. Confrontation after confrontation, and now... Jacob, you're not getting out of this one. You're going to go back home, and you're going to have another potential massive confrontation with your brother Esau. Now, the tough part, you guys, is that we on our high horse could so easily look at Jacob and say, dude, what more do you need? Get this through your thick skull. The Lord's made promises to you to protect you, to preserve you, to bless you. It's going to be fine. Esau's not going to kill you. God's God's got this. Relax, right? It always helps people when you tell them to relax, by the way. So if you look at 33, verses 1 to 3, we see a last-minute preparation. Last-minute preparation, 33, verse 1, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. And 400 of his closest friends accompanied him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Do you notice the order by which he puts them? This is by order of importance, I would argue, to Jacob. So children are divided among the women. Servants and their children, you're up front. Next, Leah and her children, you're behind them. Last of all, Rachel and Joseph. It's fascinating, is it not? Do you not see the favoritism in the text? The servants and their children, Leah and her children, and Rachel and precious little Joseph. (laughs) The only one that's given an actual name in the passage. Rachel and Joseph, the only child named, safest in the back. This is his last-ditch effort preparing for the fight. Jacob places them in order of importance. But cut the guy some slack. If you notice, Jacob himself went first as a good husband, father, and leader bowing seven times, showing complete submission and surrender to his brother. So do your best, you guys, with your imagination. Just think about what this looked like. As you've got, remember, the the big gift that the gift was sent to him with the different sections of gifts, with different servants saying, this is for you, this is from your servant Jacob, this is you, this is from your servant Jacob. This great big entourage of things coming in front of Esau as he sees gift after gift after gift. I mean, just extravagant gifts that he sent. And now he's seeing Jacob seven times, bowing, bowing, bowing. And behind him, his family, a whole big group of people. And in Jacob's mind, really, he's done every last thing the guy could do to prepare to meet Esau. I've prayed my heart out. I've gone before the Lord, wrestled with the Lord. The Lord has blessed me. The Lord has made promises to me. 
I've sent people over here. I've sent people over there. I've given him a massive gift. And now I'm actually putting my face to the ground before my brother. (sighs) Bring it. Let's see what happens. They look down at the text. Verse 4. This is a sweet reunion and family introduction. Verses 4 to 11. But Esau ran to meet him. Now, I don't know about you, but that could mean two different things without the rest of the verse. (laughs) You picture Esau as the older brother in his anger, finally, you know. Um, But rather, what happens here is he runs, he embraces him, falls on his neck, this deep, close embrace, He kisses his brother, and it says they wept, both brothers, moved by this moment. Beloved, this is precious beyond words, on many levels, actually. This is precious beyond levels, more than just the hallmarky kind, where, oh, this is sweet. It is sweet, and we shouldn't miss that. But there's more going on here. Esau runs to Jacob, almost and just overwhelms him with emotion. One commentator pointed out, and I thought, no, it's possible. He said he wondered if this was what was in the mind of Jesus when he shared the story of the prodigal. As he ran, kissed him, embraced him, where the expectation of the prodigal son was, this isn't going to go well, this isn't going to go well. Well, here it is embodied in a historical event of a brother to a brother. Esau charged his brother with great love and a big, tender heart. Embraced him, fell on him, kissed him, cried over him. Now, why was Jacob afraid? God's word was completely true, correct? God had made great promises to him. Why is Jacob walking in so much fear? I'm saying prior to the embrace. The Lord was at work through Jacob and through Jacob's prayers. God is the one who changes the hearts of men. Now, this is what's so pressing about the text, is you go, Jacob, did your gift alter this brother's perspective? Apparently not. How could I argue that? Because he tries to give it back to him. Did all your worry affect him? No. Did his prayers affect him? Most likely. But ultimately, we have to say the result of the change in the heart of Esau towards his brother is God's doing, not Jacob's manipulation. God changes the heart of man. Man doesn't change his own heart. God changes his heart. God is the one who changes the heart. All of Jacob's preparations, excluding prayer, had no effect on Esau's response to him. Buttering him up did not change him. Man's best efforts pale in comparison to God's sovereign power. And so, I, I, just as a side note, to let that kind of sink in, beloved, do you recognize the amount of time and effort and fear and pressure and family disarray that all took place in the life of Jacob prior to this meeting? And then he shows up and his brother's like, I can't wait. Where are you at? Come here. I got to give you a kiss and hug. And they're weeping and it's all just gushing out. And you go, this is God's doing. Now, here's here's what's so interesting, okay? And this is where I was beginning at the 
at the introduction of this message. Isn't it fascinating how regularly we are so afraid of a particular thing, we pray and plead with the Lord, and then when it happens and it all goes well, we rarely, unfortunately, say, God, thank you, you were completely at work in that meeting. But not just in the meeting, you were at work before the meeting. You were at the other end doing the work before I ever even got there, which is fascinating to me in that moment where you're just so fearful and trepidatious, you're thinking, God, help me, help me, help me, help me. No, the Lord's at work in Esau. The Lord's preparing the reception for you, Jacob. God's at work there too. So, beloved preacher point, If you got something going on right now, something that's just totally eating your lunch, irritating you, scaring you, can I remind you of the, from this text, the Lord God is the God of the future who is at work. He has promised you he will work all things together for his good purpose, for you who love him and are called according to his purpose. We can trust the Lord for the future. Now, I realize when that falls on our ears, if you've been a Christian for some time, it may, it may go and, and pass so quickly. But, beloved, hear me again. The Lord is in charge of the future. The Lord is the one who sovereignly is at work in your life, and he is preparing a life and preparing things for you. I'm not saying it won't be difficult. I'm just saying it's, he's in charge of it. Is that chaos waiting for you? And Jacob, with all the blessings God showered on him, still was a man, mortal man, who was walking in fear of his brother. Understandably, sure. But biblically, theologically, we should not be. Esau's eyes were drawn to Jacob's company. If you look down at your Bible... So these servants, all these people draw near to Esau, verse 5. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company? So this is what's so cool about the sweet reunion going on in the text is that it's not just brother to brother. So much has happened in the life of Jacob. Now, when you think about the character of Jacob, we talked about that for week after week after week. But remember the character of Esau. What do we know about Esau? We know that Esau was a man of the field. He was a man that was a hunter. Um, perhaps had some culinary arts because Jacob, or Isaac rather, wanted him to prepare food for him. But Esau was a man's man, tough and ready to fight. Simultaneously, whined like a little baby when he lost the blessing. That's what the text, I mean, it's not what the text says, but it is what the text says. That he wept and mourned and said, well, 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 daddy, what about my blessing? What about my blessing? And so what I see about him is that this is a pretty emotionally unstable fella. So his response being gushing out tears with his brother doesn't really surprise me that much. He's a man who's fierce. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And now he's here sobbing. You notice that even in the conversation with Isaac, he's saying, 
that how he's crying and sobbing with his father, and then right after that, he's filled with rage and going to kill his brother. That's quite a roller coaster of emotions going on in Esau. And so Esau, a very driven by his emotions, driven by his lusts, driven by his passions, is overwhelmed in this moment as Jacob goes, that's my wife, and those are my kids, and uh, this, this whole group of people came with me. Kids say hi to your Uncle Esau now that we know he's not going to kill us. <laughs> <clears throat> but notice, there's more. Esau, verse 8, said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if you have found favor, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Now, there's, there's huge um, uh, application coming from this particular part in the story, because what we see in Jacob is a man who cheated his brother, okay? Snuck in there to the point, as weird as it sounds, somehow glued animal hair on his arms, put on his brother's flannel, and then went up to his dad and lied cheated, stole the birthright, stole the blessing. He also cheated him with a bowl of soup. Not really cheated. Esau knew what he was getting into, but yeah. For a bowl of soup, he got the birthright. So you think about this, the way this man functions, the way this man works. And now this exact same man, 20 years later, comes into the presence of his brother and says, I'm giving you so much of my fortune. I want you to keep this. I want you to have it. And Esau, Esau actually has the, the big-heartedness to say, no, no, I got you. I got my brother back. And, and you know, I, I know I said I was going to kill you. And all. That's all in the past. Let, let's be together. Let's be together. I love you. I don't want to take this gift from you, which was also a pretty general practice in that day for it to be offered, for it to be refused, then to be pressed, and then to take it, and it's kind of a, a practice socially at this time. But I think Esau's big-heartedness and the movement in his soul at this time is probably the main reason he says, no, this is not the time for you to give me some huge gift. What I love about this is that what we've seen in Jacob thus far, and what we see him in this point, is this man is now officially moving with generosity. He has a generous spirit, where at first he had a cheat spirit. But God has come here. God has moved in his heart. God has richly blessed him. Do you remember in his prayer earlier in the, in the chapter prior to here, where Esau made reference to all of God's steadfast grace, his loving gifts that he's poured on me? He said, I'm not worthy of the least of what he's done for me. See, God, guys, grace is working in a process in this man's life, in this man's heart. 
Jacob is a man who at one point would steal a blessing. Now he can't even, he can't even give away a blessing to his brother. He has a very generous spirit towards Esau. Esau gives him the option to say, never mind, you can keep it. And even then he says, no, I, no, I want you to take it. Lots of folks read into that. They want to pin. It's, it's fascinating reading many different commentaries how quickly people are who want to pin poor motives on Jacob in the text. I want to be very, very careful because of what I've seen in his character and because of what I've seen God do in his life thus far to all of a sudden just start pinning bad things on this guy in reference to his motives when the text doesn't say it. Because you could read that and you could go, oh, Jacob, or Jacob is still a cheat and he's still trying to just press that and butter him up. You're a cynic. <laughs> Stop that. I think God is truly at work in this man's life. As for Esau, I don't have a clue. I don't know what has happened in his life. I don't know what's been going on in Esau's life. I don't know why Esau has had a change of heart towards his brother. I don't know what, why he doesn't want to receive the gift. I don't know why he showed an interest in, what's up, who are all these people with you? All that big-heartedness. What has been going on in his life for those past years? I don't know the answer to that question. But regardless, in this meeting... I think it's apparent that God has been at work in Jacob for sure. A generous spirit should be the consistent flavor for the Christian. We've been given everything from God at the expense of his dear son. He has so lavished upon us his kindness and grace. Therefore, generosity should flow from the Christian that truly understands the deep truths of the gospel. Here's kind of a central theme you see in the scripture. If you have God, then, you're, then, then you, it, it works in you to a point that you become a generous individual. You like to give. You want to give. And somebody goes, well, don't you need that? No, I've got the Lord. I've got the Lord. This, is, again, is a process that's working in the lives of people. No, the Lord, I have the Lord, and he provides so much. I mean, if I just stop and just put on a piece of paper everything he provides, that should just boost a generous spirit, that I want to be generous. And I'm not just talking about cash. I mean time, effort, prayers. You, you want to give to other people when you see what God has given to you. Jacob is learning this. Jacob has a grateful heart to the Lord, which is then becoming a generous heart towards other people. Now, is it perfected? Far from it. But is it working? Absolutely. The Lord is churning this in this guy's soul. So apparently Esau's wealth is in pretty good shape. He expresses no need. Jacob presses Esau to receive the gift in light of God's great grace to him. And after Jacob's urging, Esau eventually accepts the present. Lots of different takes on that little phrase where he says, I'm before you, and it's as if I was before the face of God. Um, I don't think anybody landed really clearly. Uh, the, the concept there is that God has been at work in all of this, and as I'm before you, it's as before somebody who is of great importance before me. Um, but as he stands before his brother, as he sits there or stands there before him and offers this gift to him, Jacob has conducted himself in a very kind, generous manner. 
when he sees all that God has provided. Now, this is what's fascinating. What Jacob is doing here is he is bearing witness to the grace of God to his brother. Look look down at your Bible. Jacob said, verse 10, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him. Isn't that fascinating? The man who cheated him to steal from him is now the man saying, I have enough. He doesn't just say, I have enough because I'm I'm filthy rich. He says, I have enough because God has graciously and abundantly provided for me. I don't see anywhere in this text where Esau expresses where he's at before the God, his thoughts in reference to God. All I see is his discussion here with Jacob thus far, and Jacob is the one who's pointing to the Lord in the conversation with Esau. The reason I can do this, Esau, is yes, you're my brother. Yes, I want to be your servant. Yes, I want to be here in honor and submission to you. But I got to tell you, the reason I have a generous spirit, the reason I'm willing to give you this gift and I want to do it is because God has been abundantly generous to me. And so therefore, I've got plenty. Let me bless you. Please let me bless you. And Esau says, okay. This is where it gets hairy. Look at verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. So most likely with a sense of help, protection, safety. Remember, he's got 400 with him, and he's saying, your, your group join my group, and we'll all travel together. You'll be in safety. Since we're best friends, since we are both covered in the other's tears, I think this would be a good thing to do. But Jacob said to him, my Lord, in reference to Esau, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So after receiving the gifts, Esau shows his big-hearted effort again as well. Journey with me together. And then Jacob shuts him down. I'll come back to that in a bit. Verse 15, so Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But again, Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob turns down both generous offers from his brother. Children are too frail, care for nursing flocks, And what need is there for more help? So Esau goes home. Now, this is what's fascinating about this little bit here in the text, is that Esau says, or Jacob says rather, everybody can't really make that, so why don't you just go on ahead without me? 
Now, could he have used more help? Well, I think so, because the children could have been carried, the flocks could have been cared for, some more help would have been great. It's kind of like when you have a church work day and 14 people show up and they go, well, I guess you got enough, and there's no such thing, okay? Somebody has to eat the pastries and tell you what to do, so the more the merrier. If you, had, if you have all those people, okay, yeah, leave some behind. They can help us with the animals. They can help us get the children. They can, that would be great, Esau, with your great big effort. Remember, isn't it fascinating? Jacob just pressed on him a blessing, and now Esau goes, I want to give you a blessing. No way. Okay. Well, then let me just leave some behind. What help would that be? I mean, that's really what he's saying here, which I scratch my head because I go, you just said it's going to be hard on the kids, hard on the flock. So wouldn't some more help be helpful? But he says no. And then gives a clear, strong implication. I'll catch up. I'll see you there. And then doesn't go anywhere near there. Look at the text. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house (laughs) and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth, which means booths. So he goes there, the opposite direction of Seir. So this is where I want us to be so careful with our Old Testament, with with both Old and New Testament. Beloved, please hear me on this. In your study of the scripture, be very, very careful thinking you know the impulse and the motive in the heart of the characters in scripture. Because it can lead you to very not so good application. So hold it with a loose hand is what I'm saying. Because some folks could read this text immediately and go, there you go, old Jacob. Good old Jacob. Dirty rat. Liar. He sends his brother home. Apparently, he still doesn't trust Esau. Now, is that possible? Of course. Of course, that's possible. That's what's going on here. I'm just saying, be careful saying that is what's going on here. Far too much of that happens. We as Christians want to land so quickly on, well, that's why he did it. Maybe. Be careful. Be careful. So Jacob gave the impression that he was making his way to Seir, yet didn't go. Why? Well, here's a couple options. Number one, perhaps Jacob was simply caught off guard by other matters out of his control. Doubt it. Number two, was he was again visited by the Lord, and the Lord told him not to follow his brother and to go to Succoth. Again, I just, I doubt that. Number three, perhaps Jacob still has some lingering, quote-unquote, old man in him and never intended to go to Esau's home in the first place. Perhaps he still had no trust in his brother's roller coaster of temperament. Instead, Jacob traveled the opposite direction to Succoth, and he built a home, and he built shelter for his animals, the impression that he's staying a while. I don't know about you, I rarely build a home on vacation, but that, again, it's communicating that he went there, he builds a home, he builds booths for his animals. It leads me to think Jacob had no intent of going along with his brother. Why? Is it possible, beloved, that he could forgive but not forget? 
and I'm, I'm off the page, so bear, I'm not, no authority attached to this, okay? I'm just thinking, thinking through this. Is it possible that for 20 years he's lived in great fear of this man, and now even though they've had a great big reunion, something that was precious, still not ready to trust Esau? Possibly. Possibly. Regardless, he does not go with him. Uh, side note, just something you theologians, you, you tell me. Most of the time, heavy most of the time, when somebody's name is changed in the scripture, they are not called by the name that they were called previously. Nobody refers to the apostle Saul. Peter is called Simon a few times, but all through the book of Acts, majority is always Peter. Sarai is Sarah. Abram is Abraham for the rest of Genesis after he's given that name change. God just changed Jacob's name to Israel, and nowhere in this text is he called Israel. You can ask Dennis. I don't know why either. All right. <clears throat> no, so my, my thought is, and it's purely a thought, my thought in that is that I wonder if the author is actually giving a bit of an impression here that Jacob is to some extent acting in some of his old ways, and he doesn't call him Israel. I don't know if that's the case. I just racked my brain a little bit thinking, well, after the name change, why is he still referred to as Jacob throughout this entire discourse with his brother? You can chew on it. <clears throat> Jacob then traveled to Shechem in the land of Canaan, on the outskirts. And he purchases a piece of property outside the city. Finally, Jacob is, is there. So, <clears throat> if you look down, verse 18, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he, and he camped before the city. So he still hasn't gone in. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought, a, he bought for a hundred pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. El Elohi Israel means God, the God of Israel. So I see kind of a mixed bag here. He didn't go with his brother as he said he was going to, which seems kind of slippery. Then he builds a house outside of the land he's been told to go back to. And then he leaves that, and then he goes, but he goes on the outskirts of the city, and he builds an altar to worship before the Lord. Now, this is the first time you really see an altar being built by Jacob. I think there's an indication here that this man is progressing. This man is seeing the Lord as his God. Did you notice the name? What he named the altar? The God of Israel. Remember, a ways back where Jacob said, Lord, if you do this for me, and this for me, and this for me, you will be my God. Well, apparently, he is his God, because he says it right here. You are the God of Israel. How did this affect Jacob deep in his heart? This act reveals a worshiping heart in Jacob. The reason for building this. Now, some folks debate a little bit. I'm not sure which one it is. Some folks say this was actually an altar that Abraham had constructed, and now Jacob comes and reconstructs it, or this is a fresh one that Jacob builds himself. I don't know, and I don't care that much. But the act reveals that this man has a heart to come and worship, which is profound. 
So that's a lot of information we just covered, all chapter 33, right? Well, here's my question for you. What do you make of this guy? What do you make of this guy, Jacob? See, this is what is so beautiful about Old Testament narrative is that as you travel with this individual, you watch what's going on in the life of this individual, you consistently see what God is doing, what he is doing, what God is doing, what he is doing. And what's amazing is God's not changing and Jacob's changing dramatically. But progressively, Jacob is a man of prayer. We've seen this. Jacob is a man, now we see, of worship. Jacob is a man of concern for his family as he went in front of them to go and take whatever was coming at him from his brother. Jacob is a reconciling force in his brother's life. He bent over backwards to try to be reconciled with his brother. He's also quick to fret, speedy to plan and strategize, and at times pretty slow to walk in perfect obedience to what God tells him to do. You know what he sounds like? Dan Mason. And you. As you walk with Jacob, you know what he sounds like? This sounds like a man that God has graciously been at work in and accomplishing his good purpose in his life. And so here's the real punch as I kind of land the plane this morning and we come to the table is, beloved, the longer I live as a Christian man, the more I am profoundly overwhelmed by God's inexhaustible patience with me. You know, it's interesting. We think about our own patience and we meet somebody and usually it's, a, it's an older saint that's been around the block a bunch and you go, this person has patience to spare. I wish they could give me some of that. But their patience doesn't come close. It pales in comparison, completely pales in comparison to the patience of our God with us. See, beloved, we flatter ourselves with Old Testament narrative and go, don't those dummies get it? I just I think for Christmas, for PCBC, I'm going to get this massive mirror for all of us to look in continually as we walk through the Old Testament. That there, here we are, beloved. God in his kindness and grace is patient with you. He's patient with, with Jacob. He's patient with Isaac. He's patient with Abraham. Patient with Esau. He's patient, consistently patient. I have so many times made so many mistakes where God, if I were he, I know, Whatever, those comparisons are never wise. But if I were he, I'd be done. I'm done with you, Dan. You're ridiculous. Get out of here. And rather, like a tender-hearted, kind, loving father, he works with me, helps me grow, see the error, see the mistake, shows me his word by his spirit in tender ways. Whispers quietly, no, Dan, come on, you know what the text says, you know. And then I grow, because I have a patient, heavenly Father who doesn't quit, but rather recognizes and on purpose has me in a process. The amazing factor in all of this is not Jacob's booming success, but rather God's inexhaustible patience and grace 
And you're no different, beloved. This is your history. Don't forget that, please. You are a child of Abraham by faith. This is your history. This is your God. You are his child. And the tenderheartedness he shows Jacob, the scripture tells us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. So, in turn, if God would show such impeccable patience towards you, how patient are you with those in the process around you? Temperature just dropped. <laughs> I mean this with all of my heart because I'm facing Dan, okay? I'm not talking down to anybody. I just want you to think this through with me. With God and his love and tenderheartedness and patience towards us. And then for us to have the audacity to say, come on, people, just get with it and get right. It's not the verbiage. It's not the language. It's not the heart attitude of a Christian. Christian is one of deep, deep patience for those in process around them. And so as I see God so patient with Jacob, I cannot help but think of how patient he's been with me and then how that's going to work out. God, please help me to be a patient man. I want to show your kind of patience to this world. But not just to this world, to the church. I want to be patient with brothers and sisters. And I plead that God would give them grace. They'd be patient with Dan. If the Lord is so profoundly concerned, tenderhearted, and patient with his people, how dare his people be so impatient with his people? And so may God have mercy on us. May God have mercy and grace to enable us to be patient. Recognize God's at work here. God's accomplishing his task. I need to be faithful with the message, faithful in prayer, and trust him with the results. You know how many times I've said that from this pulpit? You know how many times I've said that in my private prayer life? I need to be faithful to say the message. I need to be faithful to prayer. And I need to trust him with the results. Father God,